Chapter One of the Inevitable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlech. The Inevitable by Louis Caporus. Translated by Alexander Texiera de Matos. The Inevitable. Chapter One. The Marchesa's Bologna's boarding house was situated in one of the healthiest, if not one of the most romantic quarters of Rome. One half of the house had formed part of a villino of the old Ludovisi gardens, those beautiful old gardens regretted by everybody who knew them before the new barrack quarters were built on the site of the old Roman park, with its border of villas. The entrance to the pension was in the Via Lombardia. The older or Valino portion of the house retained a certain antique charm for the Marchesa's borders, while the new premises built onto it offered the advantages of spacious rooms, modern sanitation, and electric light. The pension boasted a certain reputation for comfort cheapness and a pleasant situation it stood at a few minutes walk from the pensio on high ground and there was no need to fear malaria and the price charged for a long stay amounting to hardly more than eight lire was exceptionally low for rome which was known to be more expensive than any other town in italy the boarding-house therefore was generally full the visitors began to arrive as soon as October. Those who came earliest in the season paid least, and, with the exception of a few hurrying tourists, they nearly all remained until Easter, going southward to Naples after the great church festivals. Some English traveling acquaintances had strongly recommended the pension to Cornelie de Ritz van Lu who was travelling in Italy by herself, and she had written to the Marchesa Belloni from Florence. It was her first visit to Italy. It was the first time that she had alighted at the great cavernous station near the baths of Diocletian, and, standing in the square, in the golden Roman sunlight, while the great fountain of the Aqua Marcia gushed and rippled, and the cab-drivers clicked with their whips and their tongues to attract her attention, she was conscious of her nice Italian sensation, as she called it, and felt glad to be in Rome. She saw a little old man limping towards her with the instinct of a veteran porter who recognizes his travellers at once, and she read Hotel Belloni on his cap, and beckoned to him with a smile. He saluted her with respectful familiarity, as though she were an old acquaintance and he was glad to see her, asked if she had a pleasant journey, if she was not overtired, led her to the Victoria, put in her rug and her handbag, asked for the tickets of her trunks, and said that she had better go on ahead. He would follow in ten minutes with the luggage, 
she received an impression of coziness of being well cared for by this little old lame man and she gave him a friendly nod as the coachman drove away she felt happy and careless though she had just the faintest foreboding of something unhappy and unknown that was going to happen to her and she looked to the right and left to take in the streets of rome but she saw only houses upon houses like so many barracks then a great white palace the new palazzo piombino which she knew to contain the juno lodovisi and then the ventura stopped and a boy in buttons came out to meet her he showed her into the, the drawing-room a gloomy apartment in the middle of which was a table covered with periodicals arranged in a regular and unbroken circle two ladies obviously english and of the aesthetic type with loose fizzing blouses and grimy hair sat in a corner studying their baedekers before going out cornelia bowed slightly but received no bow in return she did not take offence being familiar with the manners of travelling britons she sat down at the table and took up the roman herald the paper which appears once a fortnight and tells you what there is to do in rome during the next two weeks thereupon one of the ladies asked her from the corner in an aggressive tone i beg your pardon but would you please not take the herald to your room cornelie raised her head very haughtily and languidly in the direction where the ladies were sitting looked vaguely above their grimy heads said nothing and glanced down at the herald again and she thought herself a very experienced traveller and smiled inwardly because she knew how to deal with that type of englishwoman the marchesa entered and welcomed cornelie in italian and in french she was a large fat matron vulgarly fat her ample bosom was contained in a silk curaz or spencer shiny at the seams and bursting under the arms her grey frizzled hair gave her a somewhat leonine appearance her great yellow and blue eyes with beaster shadows beneath them wore a strained expression the pupils unnaturally dilated by belladonna a pair of immense crystals sparkled in her ears and her fat greasy fingers were covered with nameless jewels she talked very fast and cornelie thought her sentences as pleasant and homely as the welcome of the lame porter in the square outside the station the marchesa led her to the lift and stepped in with her the hydraulic lift a railed-in cage running up the well of the staircase rose solemnly and suddenly stopped motionless between the second and third floor third floor cried the marchesa to someone below non si e aqua the boy in buttons calmly called back meaning thereby to convey that as seemed natural there was not enough water to move the lift the marchesa screamed out some orders in a shrill voice two facchini came running up and hung on to the cable of the lift 
together with the ostensibly zealous boy in buttons, and by fits and starts the cage rose higher and higher, until at last it almost reached the third story. A little higher, ordered the Marchesa. But the Facini strained their muscles in vain. The lift refused to stir. We can manage, said the Marchesa. Wait a bit. Taking a great stride, which revealed the enormous white-stocking calf of her leg, she stepped onto the floor, smiled, and gave her hand to Cornelie, who imitated her gymnastics. Here we are, sighed the Marchesa with a smile of satisfaction. This is your room. She opened a door and showed Cornelie a room. Though the sun was shining brightly out of doors, the room was as damp and chilly as a cellar. Marchesa, Cornelie said, without hesitation, I wrote to you for two rooms facing south. Did you? asked the Marchesa, plausibly and ingenuously. I really didn't remember. Yes, that is one of those foreigners' ideas, rooms facing south. This is really a beautiful room. I'm sorry, but I can't accept this room, Marchesa. La Bologna grumbled a bit, went down the corridor and opened the door of another room. And this one, Signora? How do you like this? Is it south? Almost. I want it full south. This looks west. You see the most splendid sunsets from your window. I absolutely must have a south room, Marchesa. I also have the most charming little apartments looking east. You get the most picturesque sunrises there. No, Marchesa. Don't you appreciate the beauties of nature? Just a little, but I put my health first. I sleep in a north room myself. You are Italian, Marchesa, and you are used to it. I am very sorry, but I have no rooms facing south. Then I am sorry, too, Marchesa, but I must look out somewhere else. Cornelie turned as though to go away. The choice of a room sometimes means the choice of a life. The Marchesa caught hold of her hand and smiled. She had abandoned her cool tone, and her voice was all honey. Davvero, that's one of those foreigners' ideas. Rooms facing south but I have two little kennels left, here. And she quickly opened two doors, two snug little cupboards of rooms, which showed through the open windows a lofty and spacious view of the sky, outspread above the streets and roofs below, with the blue dome of St. Peter's in the distance. These are the only rooms I have left facing south, said the Marchesa plaintively. I shall be glad to have these, Marchesa. Sixteen lire, smiled La Bellone. Ten, as you wrote. I could put two persons in here. I shall stay all the winter if I am satisfied. You must have your way, the Marchesa exclaimed, suddenly, in her sweetest voice, a voice of graceful surrender. You shall have the rooms for twelve lire. Don't let us discuss it any more. The rooms are yours. You are Dutch, are you not? We have a Dutch family staying here, a mother with two daughters and a son. Would you like to sit next to them at table? 
No, I'd rather you put me somewhere else. I don't care for my fellow countrymen when travelling. The Marchesa left Cornelia to herself. She looked out of the window, absent-mindedly, glad to be in Rome, yet faintly conscious of the something unhappy and unknown that was going to happen. There was a tap at her door. The men carried in her luggage. She saw that it was eleven o'clock and began to unpack. One of her rooms was a small sitting room, like a birdcage in the air, looking out over Rome. She altered the position of the furniture, draped the faded sofa with a shawl from the Abruzzi and fixed a few portraits and photographs with drawing pins to the wall, whose whitewashed surface was broken up by rudely painted arabesques and she smiled at the border of purple hearts transfixed by arrows which surrounded the decorated panels of the wall after an hour's work her sitting-room was settled she had a home of her own with a few of her own shawls and rugs a screen here a little table there cushions on the sofa books within easy reach when she had finished and had sat down and looked around her she suddenly felt very lonely. She began to think of the Hague and of what she had left behind her. But she did not want to think and picked up her Baedeker and read about the Vatican. She was unable to concentrate her thoughts and turned to Hare's walks in Rome. A bell sounded. She was tired and her nerves were on edge. She looked in the glass, saw that her hair was out of curl, her blouse soiled with coal and dust, unlocked a second trunk and changed her things. She cried and sobbed while she was curling her hair. The second bell rang, and after powdering her face, she went downstairs. She expected to be late, but there was no one in the dining room, and she had to wait before she was served. She resolved not to come down so very punctually in future. A few boarders looked in through the open door, saw that there was no one sitting at table yet, except a new lady, and disappeared again. Cornelia looked around her and waited. The dining room was the original dining room of the old villa, with a ceiling by Guercina. The waiters loitered about. The, an old grey major-domo cast a distant glance over the table to see if everything was in order. He grew impatient when nobody came and told him to serve the macaroni to Cornelie. It struck Cornelie that he too limped with one leg, like the porter. But the waiters were very young, hardly more than sixteen to eighteen, and lacked a waiter's usual self-possession. A stout gentleman, vivacious, consequential, pockmarked, ill-shaven in a shabby black coat which showed but little linen entered rubbing his hands and took his seat opposite cornelie he bowed politely and began to eat his macaroni and this seemed to be the signal for the others to begin eating for a number of boarders mostly ladies now came in sat down and helped themselves to the macaroni which was handed round by the youthful waiters under the watchful eye of the grey-haired major-domo 
Cornelie smiled at the oddity of these travelling types, and, when she involuntarily glanced at the pockmarked gentleman opposite, she saw that he too was smiling. He hurriedly mopped up his tomato sauce with his bread, bent a little way across the table, and almost whispered in French, It's amusing, isn't it? Cornelie raised her eyebrows. What do you mean? A cosmopolitan company like this? Oh, yes. You are Dutch. How do you know? I saw your name in the visitor's book with the La Haye after it. I am Dutch, yes. There are some more Dutch ladies here, sitting over there. They are charming. Cornelie asked the major domo for some vin ordinaire. That wine is no good, said the stout gentleman vivaciously. This is Genzano, pointing to his fiasco. I pay a small corkage and drink my own wine. The major domo put a pint bottle in front of Cornelie. It was included in her pension without extra charge. If you like, I will give you the address where I get my wine. Via della Croce 61. Cornelie thanked him. The pockmarked gentleman's uncommon ease and vivacity diverted her. You're looking at the majordomo, he asked. You are a keen observer, she smiled in reply. He's a type, our majordomo, Giuseppe. He used to be a majordomo in the palace of an Austrian archduke. He did, I do not know what. Stole something, perhaps, or was impertinent, or dropped a spoon on the floor. He has come down in the world. Now you behold him in the pension belloni, but the dignity of the man. He leant forward. The Marchesa is economical. All the servants here are either old or very young. It's cheaper. He bowed to two German ladies, a mother and a daughter, who had come in and sat down beside him. I have the permit which I promised you to see the Palazzo Rospigliosi and Guido Reni's Aurora, he said, speaking in German. Is the prince back then? No, the prince is in Paris. The palace is not open to visitors except yourselves. This was said with a gallant bow. The German ladies exclaimed how kind he was, how he was able to do anything, to find a way out of every difficulty. They had taken endless trouble to bribe the Rospigliosi porter, and they had not succeeded. A little thin Englishwoman had taken her seat beside Cornelie. And for you, Miss Taylor, I have a card for a low mass in His Holiness's private chapel. Miss Taylor was radiant with delight. Have you been sightseeing again? The pockmarked gentleman continued. Yes, Museo Kirciano, said Miss Taylor. But I am tired out. It was most exquisite. My prescription, Miss Taylor, is that you stay at home this afternoon and rest. I have an engagement to go to the Aventino. You mustn't. You're tired. You look worse every day, and you're losing flesh. You must rest, or you shan't have the card for the low mass. The German ladies laughed. Miss Taylor, flattered, 
in an ecstasy of delight, gave her promise. She looked at the pockmarked gentleman as though she expected to hear the judgment of Solomon fall from his lips. Lunch was over, the rum steak, the pudding, the dried figs. Cornelie rose. May I give you a glass out of my bottle, asked the stout gentleman. Do taste my wine and tell me if you like it. If so, I'll order a fiasco for you in the Via della Croce. Cornelie did not like to refuse. She sipped the wine. It was deliciously pure. She thought it would be a good thing to drink a pure wine in Rome. And as she reflected, the stout gentleman seemed to read her quick thought. It is a good thing, he said, to drink a strengthening wine while you are in Rome where life is so tiring. Cornelia agreed. This is Genzano, at two lire seventy-five, the fiasco. It will last you a long time. The wine keeps, so I'll order you a fiasco. He bowed to the ladies around and left the room. The German ladies bowed to Cornelia. Such an amiable man, that Mr. Rudyard. What can he be? Cornelia wondered. French, German, English, American. End of chapter.